0: The Sheila Zelinsky Show is sponsored by SteveQuail.com, offering a wide variety of products, links, headlines, and information for the end times. Order Steve's new book, Little Creatures, by visiting SteveQuail.com. Dare to discover, learn, prepare, and be amazed. Folks, welcome back from the break. You all know my next guest. It is such a pleasure to bring him on. Pastor Jim Cimbala, he is the native New Yorker, raised in Brooklyn. His early love of basketball earned him a scholarship to the University of Rhode Island, where he became captain of the basketball team. After graduation, he immediately entered the business world, and soon after, Pastor Cimbala and his wife Carol began their lives together, and before long, though he did not have any formal theological training, Pastor Symbala felt a call to the ministry. A Tuesday night prayer meeting in a rough part of Brooklyn became a central feature in the life of the church and has remained so to this day. Today, Pastor Symbala oversees a congregation of several thousand people, and you know it is the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Many of the inner city problems are still there, but so is the congregation's dependency upon the grace of God who has raised up workers to direct outreach to children, women, men, youth, seniors, The homeless and people in shelters, among others. Pastor Simbala, I am a big fan. Thank you so much for coming on my program today.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Thank you for having me. Some people today just don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit because they might be too charismatic. We really don't have a good handle in today's church on the Holy Spirit. A lot of people have a very limited understanding about the holy ghost in fact some people don't even really want to acknowledge the holy spirit well on the other side is not many people getting converted you know the church is getting lost somewhere in the middle help us understand the real essential part about the holy
1: spirit well that's the problem that you just put your finger on on one side we have people reacting to the excesses of the parts of the charismatic movement, which those excesses are blamed on the Holy Spirit, all kinds of shenanigans going on. So then there's a recoil, and let's just study the Bible. All the rest is emotionalism and fanaticism. Let's just study the Bible and then go out to eat. While on the other side, there's all kinds of new manifestations, unbiblical in nature, not edifying people, not many folks getting uh, converted to Christ. And the middle ground is lost. And the middle ground is the New Testament church. There's a reason why Jesus Christ um, said to the disciples, it's good for you that I leave. None of them would have believed that. Uh, He was their their rabbi, their teacher, their example, their their shepherd, shall we say. And now he was going to leave, die on a cross and leave them. And it was good for them that he would leave them. Impossible. But he said, no, unless I go... Uh, the Holy Spirit won't come, and he's going to be in you. The dynamic change that happened in the disciples did not happen while Jesus was with them for three and a half years discipling them. No, the new Peter, the new James, the new John, and later the Apostle Paul after conversion shook the world because they had the simple gospel of Christ, but they were operating under the auspices and power of the Holy Spirit. So today we've got to go back to that middle ground of always honoring, treasuring God's word. But that word was offered by the Holy Spirit, and there's a lot about him in that book.
0: Right. Well, so many people today, Jim, they really think they can live without the Holy Spirit. Comment on that, if you will, please.
1: Yeah, that, I think, is one of the saddest facts about the current state of Christendom is that we can do without the Holy Spirit. We have computers. We're clever. We've got money. We've got nice buildings. But Christianity is hopeless, as Samuel Chadwick, the great Methodist preacher, said. Christianity is hopeless without the Holy Spirit because he he's the only one who can bring conviction of sin, not only in the unbeliever who would then turn to Christ, I need a Savior, But even the sin that gets into believers' lives. So churches can really start to fall apart quickly unless there's that beautiful, purifying work of the Holy Spirit. And also evangelism can't be done because that love that we have to have for people when we talk to them, to see people the way Christ sees them, to feel what he feels, how would... Jim Cimbala ever be able to conjure that up, manufacture that up. No, but the Holy Spirit was sent so that I could see people and feel what Christ feels, and that that's what makes for successful gospel ministry.
0: You wrote the book, and I have a copy of this book, Spirit Rising. How can people really understand the Holy Spirit's part, and how can this change their lives, Jim?
1: Well, it can change our lives because our theology will be Bible-centered in this sense. The Father sent the Son. The Son came and did his work. He died on the cross as the Lamb of God. He rose again on the third day. He went back to the right hand of the Father. And then he sent the Spirit. So let's just stop and think about that. God's only agent on planet Earth right now is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not here. Someone might say, no, when we gather together two or three, he said he would be there. But that's through the Holy Spirit, who is also called the Spirit of Christ. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and there is a moment when he will return to this earth. But until then, we live in the dispensation or time of the Holy Spirit. And he's living. He's alive. He leads. He guides uh, believers, he right. produces fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, and Christianity becomes so burdensome and laborious without a dependence on the Holy Spirit because you try to produce love and joy and peace in yourselves. How would I do that? how would i How would jim symbol if i 'm joyless produce joy? no, it's the Holy Spirit doing all of that work
0: right I love the story in your book where you had a Tuesday night prayer meeting where God had you pray for Pakistan. Talk about that story from the book.
1: Well, that was amazing because one day, the day prior, on a Monday, I was reading um, the New York Times and the Washington Post on my Kindle and was reading about some persecution of believers in a little town I had never heard of, Godra, in, in Pakistan, and how they were set upon with a false rumor. And then a couple of them died And a fanatic um, uh, group of uh, Muslims burned down all their houses. And I I just was reading this. And suddenly the Holy Spirit began to just cause me to weep over these fellow believers and pray for them and the families who had lost uh, members uh, to this violence. And here I was, you know eating a salad in a restaurant and having to turn to the wall so nobody would see the tears running out of my eyes as I couldn't stop praying uh, for this, this situation. Well, the next day I brought the Kindle into church, which I never do in a prayer meeting, and say, i got to read something to you. I just can't. This thing is still on me. I just keep praying and praying and praying. So I read the, the article, which was uh, rather well-balanced, uh, and told the congregation what happened and we have a couple thousand or more people in our tuesday night prayer meeting and you could feel the groans and the and the emotion of like oh wow lost their houses people killed all for just serving jesus and i said well look i i don't know what to do but let's pray so we gathered in groups all over the auditorium and just started praying god help our fellow believers in pakistan i don't know anyone in pakistan i don't know a missionary in pakistan but let's pray It was mighty. It was intense because, remember, the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us to pray. Paul says in Romans 8, we don't know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit helps us. You can say prayers or you can really pray in the Spirit, as the Bible says, with the Holy Spirit giving you fervency and urgency and faith. When we got through praying, I asked the Lord, Lord, what do I do now? Maybe we should take a collection, but... I don't know anyone in Pakistan. How would I get the money there? And where is this Godra And Lord, just please show me what to do. Uh, I told the people, all right, let's go back to our seats. And as I'm going back uh, back on the platform, a guy, one of our leadership, runs down the middle aisle and saying, Pastor, there's a woman in the back, Pakistan, Pakistan. And I'm going, what are you talking about? And it turns out that there's a woman in the back, First time in our church on a Tuesday night, and she's from Pakistan. So I said, bring her up. But I wasn't ready for what was about to unfold because she comes up on the platform, and I turn to her and I say, you're from Pakistan, and you're visiting here for the first time. She said, yes, I'm the wife of a pastor, the first responders to go and help the believers who have lost everything. And you could hear the gasp in the building as she said this. And we just began to praise God, collected money, vetted it, making sure everything was legitimate, which it was. And here, 10,000 or more dollars went to help these Christians in this town all orchestrated every ounce of it, every inch of it, by the Holy Spirit.:
0: Get into how we are filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think there's a lot of misinformation about this.
1: Yes, my understanding uh, is, based on Scripture, is that every single believer has the Holy Spirit living inside of him. In fact, that was the early proof of a Christian being a Christian. It wasn't a mental affirmation of a doctrinal statement. It was, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him, from Romans 8. So uh, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. When the Bible talks about Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit, saying something, or Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, did that, when Ephesians 5 tells us, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit, well, what does that mean? It's not like water uh, where it fills up a glass and then overflows, although that's interesting imagery. But since the Holy Spirit is a person, to me, being filled is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Not all believers, obviously, live lives controlled by the Holy Spirit. He might live inside of us, but he doesn't have that yieldedness in our lives so that he can control us, lead us, guide us. There's a wonderful story in my book, Spirit Rising, about a young lady who came to our church who... Unbeknownst to me, I thought she was a drug addict that someone brought in to be prayed for many years ago, but she was full of the devil, she was possessed by evil spirits and What happened when we began to pray for her is quite a story. but she uh, really attacked me and ripped the the collar of my white dress shirt off like it was a piece of tissue paper, and the girl didn't even stand five foot tall, the young lady well. She was empowered, as you said. She was controlled by by something very horrible. The Lord set her free that night, and now she can live a life controlled, led, guided, empowered, able to do things that she couldn't ordinarily do. That's the story of the early church. Jesus chose fishermen and tax collectors. Why? Because... If you were a farmer fisherman, who would you depend on when you were put in charge of international missions and (laughs) had to preach on the Day of Pentecost? You would depend on this one who had been promised, the Holy Spirit. And that was the secret of early Christianity. They proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to return to that basic fundamental truth today. For those of
0: the listeners who have not seen the Holy Ghost working in and amongst their lives, how do they distinguish that? Give give us a your cold notes version on how they can distinguish that. Because a lot of people, again, they just don't understand how the Holy Ghost works in their lives. They kind of see him as this it that's out there. They don't have a good comprehension of that.
1: Well, I think some of the imagery that's in the Bible about him throws us off because he's likened to water. He's likened to wind, and the same word is used for breath. He's likened to one of the images of the Holy Spirit is oil, and then fire. You know, there were cloven tongues of fire on each of the believers there when they were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. But he's a person with a personality, and one of the great verses that should help encourage us is in Acts 13 when Paul is in Antioch, in in Syria, and they're with the elders there, and he's in leadership, and they're all worshiping God, and suddenly the Bible says so strangely to our ears, and as they were worshiping and praising God, the Holy Spirit said, how, it doesn't say, separate me, Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, for the work that I've called them to. Right. Now, that must have been a very dramatic moment, and how that happened through one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit certainly wasn't an audible voice in the auditorium. But they were sent out not only by the laying on hands of the church, but they were sent out, the Bible says, by the Holy Spirit. That would build a lot of confidence in me if the Holy Spirit said, I have work for you to do, and then sent me out on the journey. And we have the right to go to God and say... Holy Spirit, govern the church of Jesus Christ. That's why you were sent. We're tired of our own human, uh, worldly wisdom. Give us your wisdom, your knowledge. Show us where all the pieces belong. And that's when Christianity gets so wonderfully exciting and bears fruit for the praise of the name of Jesus.
0: Right. Well, he is the comforter. There's many names for him. He really is the power of the living God in us, what should that look like in our lives?
1: Well, uh, you know, at the end of Acts uh, chapter 4, after the first persecution of the Christian church, they returned to a prayer meeting, Peter and John did, and after being let go by the uh, religious authorities and spending a night in jail, and they lifted their voices together and they began to pray. And the Bible says, in the place where they prayed, it's very good to have prayer meetings because prayer and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit and prayer are linked together so much in the Bible. The Bible says, the place where they prayed was shaken. That doesn't always happen, a literal shaking. And they were all filled. Now, these are the same people who were, quote, filled in the second chapter of the book of Acts. But you see, there's that continual renewal of the Holy Spirit in our lives where we draw more open to him and more surrendered. And the Bible says they went out and spoke the word of God with boldness. One of the things that the Holy Spirit, when he's in control of our lives, produces automatically is boldness. Instead of shyness, fear, trepidation about people turning on us and rejecting us, we get bold. We get crazy for Jesus. (laughs) But it's not us. It's the Holy Spirit giving us that boldness. And there's a hundred other things that the New Testament tells us only the Spirit can produce in our lives.
0: Right. Jim, you really focus a lot on prayer groups, prayer ministry. Why is prayer so vital, not just to the Brooklyn Tabernacle and your group, but to Christians at large today? I mean, that prayer time is so important, yet it's really lacking in today's church. Why is prayer important to you?
1: Yeah, well, that's that's a forgotten. Just like the Holy Spirit is the forgotten person, the person of the Trinity, uh, prayer, the prayer meeting people gathering to pray, I'm afraid the enemy has stolen that valuable, wonderful privilege that God has granted us because Jesus cleansed the temple. I was just reading the other day in the book of John, he cleansed the temple in Jerusalem and he said... You've turned it into a marketplace to make money. But my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. Not because God is saying, pray, come on, if you love me, you better pray. No, God is saying, I love you. Now come to the throne of grace so that I can give you that which you need. But God's law is this, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and it will be open. And I think the worst epitaph that could be put uh, on somebody's tombstone and on a church's tombstone is, you have not because you ask not. Right. So what an encouragement that is, that right now the Lord is not put his hands crossed saying, are you going to pray? Or he's, But he's saying, no, come to me. I want to give you what you need, but humble yourself, admit your need, and I'll bless you.
0: Right, amen. Well, I can't recommend your book enough, Jim. I know you got to run. I really appreciate you coming on the program. Thank you so much. I've got the book link there, folks, at WeekendVigilante.com. Jim, thank you so much for your time coming on the program today. Thanks for having me. Folks, that was Pastor Jim Cimbala from the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Folks, let's have a listen to one of Pastor Cimbala's more notable sermons. And thanks for tuning in today, folks.
1: And I want to talk for a few moments about something so vital, and yet it's so simple. It's so familiar to us that that's the danger. I want our session this morning to be something that will make a difference in our lives rather than just some kind of talk with more information about God. I pray that by His grace we can have fresh communion with God. To approach that subject, I want to give you one of the most strange and stunning pictures of Jesus found anywhere in the Bible. Of all the portraits you've ever seen painted, there is no portrait found in the Bible stranger. We see Christ on the cross. We know Christ as the Good Shepherd. We know Christ walking on the water. We see Christ sitting at the well with a woman in Samaria. But in your wildest dreams, can you ever picture this? And have you ever wondered why God would put this in the Bible? Not just once, but twice. And so they came to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now the Bible has many pictures of Jesus Christ, and to me, none is stranger. The the Lamb of God, the, the one who came to take away the sins of the world, the gentle, loving Jesus, who as the good shepherd puts the Lamb on his shoulders and brings it home. And yet, in this portion of Scripture, we see Jesus physically emoting in a way that is really hard for us to picture. That he would actually take tables and overturn them and throw money on the ground that he somehow all by himself with no armed uh, helpers the disciples were passive in this that he would stop people from carrying their merchandise and just by a word of authority he said get out of here with that you can't bring that through the court and that he would go to the people who sold the oxen and the sheep and the doves for the poor people and he would say out get your business out of here I mean it's an amazing picture of Jesus Christ The loving Jesus that we know, you know, we think that for him, anybody to be that irate and physical must mean they're not in the spirit. But this is Jesus Christ. And what's strange about this is this is not the first time this has happened. I read from Mark. And the Bible tells us in John the second chapter that in Jesus' first visit to the temple after he began his public ministry when he was about 30 years old, he did the same exact thing. In fact, the Bible tells us there that he made, are you ready, a a, a whip out of cords. And used a cord, these cords and this whip, to actually physically thrash them out of the temple. Now it's three or two years later from there, and now he's getting ready to face Calvary, and he comes back to the temple, and he cleanses it again. Why would God put something so stunning in the Bible that he would go into the holy temple of God and get so physical and so irate and say, You've made it a house of merchandise. You've made it a den of thieves. Get out of here. Is it not written, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer? Now what's odd about all of this is that the people who were in there belonged there. The people who were selling the animals had to be near the temple precincts because there was no way to offer the sacrifices prescribed in Leviticus and the books of Moses unless somebody could have those animals available for you. You couldn't be carting these animals from your home or all through the streets of Jerusalem. So those people belonged there. But they had put a gouging uplift on the price. They were making money hand over fist, taking advantage of the fact that they were the ones who could assist and they were hiking the prices up so that people were getting taken advantage of. And the money changers, you know, you had to pay the the temple tax if you were a good Jew. And you couldn't use Greek or Roman money. You had to actually use the, the special coins that were minted in Jerusalem itself. So those money changers were there to take your money from wherever you came from, Macedonia or whatever. And you changed your money so that you could make the proper donation. But they were, once again, tacking on big time profit. The, the writers of that time tell us that instead of going around the temple, they said, let's take a shortcut. And they went through the, temp, the court of the Gentiles, right through the temple, carting their stuff, making the house of God a shortcut to big-time money. And Jesus, with his whip made of cords, and Jesus somehow physically, with just his presence and his authority, just thrashes them out of there and kicks them all out. Before I get to my main point, it does remind us that all of us who are involved in singing in choirs and preaching the gospel and pastoring churches and gospel singing, whatever the style is, and you who are Sunday school teachers, because I know there's a lot of influence in this room right now, you're going to go back, a lot of you are leaders in the place where you came from. Boy, does that challenge us to remember that it's not just not if you're doing God's work, it's how you do God's work. For the Bible tells us that one day Jim Cimbala is going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and God's going to ask me why I pastored the Brooklyn Tabernacle and with what spirit. You, you, you see, these people were in the temple, but they didn't have the spirit of the temple. They were supposed to be there to assist people to worship and to come into God's presence, and they were there, but they were out of sync with the whole, with the whole purpose that God had for the place called the house of the Lord. I mean, they were doing it. They were doing the job, but they were making big time money. And they were greedy. And they had brought a secular spirit into a sacred place. They were businessmen. They were crass businessmen coming into something that God said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. you made it a den of thieves. You're getting over on the people. Out with you. Awesome thought. And in a day when gospel music and gospel preaching and gospel work can become so mechanical or oriented toward me, myself, and I. It reminds all of us today here at the praise gathering that as we go back to our separate duties, that we have to do God's work with God's spirit. We have to do God's work and approach it with God's heart because one day, it doesn't matter if your friends approve of you, it doesn't matter how many albums you sell or how popular Jim Simbler is or if he writes a book, one day the Bible says, I'm going to stand in front of the one whose eyes are like fire and I can't get over on him. All of you that sing in that choir, it's not just if you're on your note, it's why you're on your note. It's the spirit that you do in it. Am I doing it for the glory of God? Do I really care about those people in New York City? I mean, am I preaching just to put on a show and get through another service? Or does my heart really radiate with God's love? And and am I saying the things that he wants me to say with the spirit he wants me to say them? The Bible says that when Jesus went into the temple, he reminded them, This is not your house. This is my father's house. And my father's house has to be run my father's way. And when you touch something sacred in a secular way, I'm going to kick you all out of here. And even though he's not walking through churches today and kicking people out, there is going to come that day when Paul says we'll all stand at the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to have to give a review to the Lord. And we will be reviewed on why we did what we did and how we did it. Not only on the crass business side of money because it's so easy to make gospel work, just another way to make a living. That's what these people were doing. They weren't interested in people getting in contact with God. They were making a living out of it. But as we do God's work, we must not rob the glory that is only due to him. Whenever we do and whatever we say, the Lord wants to remind us through this that all the glory and all the honor must go to Jesus Christ. But the thing that really provoked Jesus into this angry tirade was this. He said, you men don't even understand about my father's house. My father's house shall be called a house of prayer. And you've made it a den of thieves. My father's house shall be called a house of prayer. The atmosphere of my father's house is supposed to be prayer. And instead of keeping that atmosphere and aiming at that atmosphere and understanding my father's purpose, you've made it a place just to make a buck So out with you. The thing that's supposed to distinguish Christian churches and Christian people and Christian gatherings is the aroma and the atmosphere of prayer. The Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ died and resurrected and went back to heaven and he began his church, which the gates of hell shall not prevail against, he kept the same line running through the formation of the church, which was in his father's house. Have you ever noticed that the Christian church was not born while someone was preaching, but while people were praying? Have you ever noticed that in the second chapter of the book of Acts, when the church was born, they were doing nothing but just waiting on God and praying? And they were just sitting there, and as they were praying and worshiping and waiting and having heart communion with God and God shaping them... Cleaning them out and building faith into them and doing those heart operations that only the Holy Spirit could do. The church was born. The Spirit was poured out. My house shall be called house of prayer. Peter and John are arrested and they're slapped around and threatened. Don't you preach anymore in that name. And what do they do? They don't go and protest. They don't go to the Supreme Court. They don't try to get some political leverage. They go back to a prayer meeting. They go back and say, behold the threat. Oh God, look how they're threatening us. But oh God, we lift our voices together to you. Oh God, behold their threats and give your servants boldness that we might preach the name of Jesus. And the place where they prayed again was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. My house shall be called house of prayer. They had this instinct. When in trouble, pray. When intimidated, pray. When challenged, pray. When persecuted, pray. When you're in trouble, pray. First of all, before anything else, supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving to be made for all men. That's first of all. It doesn't matter what your tradition is or what American Christianity says. The Word of God says, first of all then, I want supplications because we've got to remember, Timothy, my house shall be called the house of prayer. Paul says Men praying with holy hands without wrath or death. In fact, the book of Revelation says that when the four and twenty four, the four and twenty elders fall at the feet of Jesus, they have these golden bowls. And you know what's in the bowls? This incense that is so fragrant to Christ, it's the prayers of the saints. The Bible says, and they continued, the early church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, we've revised that and said, if you can get people for one hour on Sunday morning in a building, that's the church. That's not the church. We can use every device we want to get people for one hour and keep it early and keep it moving and keep it going because people have important things to do that day. That's not the story of the Christian church. That might be the story of my church or your church, but that's not the church Jesus built. And the history of revivals down through the ages have told us that whenever things have grown crass and commercial and secular and hard and worldly, God sends a revival. And what's always the sign of the revival? Behold, they pray.